0: Hello and welcome to Not Quite Great Books TV Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, John McMahon, and joining me on the other line, just back from getting a new forearm tattoo, is Danielle (laughs) Hanley
1: oh man i need the i need the scales of amit on my yeah, forearm to judge definitely. the evil in the world <laughs> that's all we need from me
0: <laughs> i don't know i think there's gonna be a lot of judging of my me and my character in this episode it sounds like from the pre-show discussion so maybe danielle actually did get a new tattoo and didn't tell me about it
1: no danielle wants a new owl tattoo like where's the mcu owl imagery like give us give us that
0: I am only. I, I think we've talked about this on here, but I, I'm down for getting an owl tattoo with yeah. you. I will not get an MCU theme. No, no, tattoo. no, no.
1: It won't be an. There isn't an owl in the MCU anywhere, so it won't be that.
0: I'm sure there's. Some I want the in one
1: there. that's on my phone that looks like an owl waving.
0: <laughs> cool. I'm in.
1: Great. Okay. Now that we've sorted that out, should we dive into (laughs) our next, uh, our next project? That's right. (laughs)
0: Somehow both Danielle and I agreed that it'd be a good idea to do another MCU show together.
1: Danielle tried to unagree to this. (laughs) You
0: did? I don't even remember that. No, no,
1: no, no, no. I, first of all, I love talking to you on this podcast so much that like, honestly, we could watch something terrible and like, I would complain about it, but I would still do it. So <laughs> it's kind of like how I got you here today. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Whenever you think I don't like these, you got to remember that. You gotta, and I, and <laughs> I like them more than you think I do, even though I think there's a lot of nonsense.
1: Listen, you know, eh, we're we're testing the boundaries of our
0: friendship. (laughs) It's an experiment all around. Yeah. Um, I was going to make a joke about our theorists that we're going to the cave with later, but I will pass
1: for now. (laughs) Oh, man. Okay, so we are here. We are talking about Moon Knight, Episode 1, The Goldfish Problem. It's directed by Mohammed Diab. Um, it's written by Jeremy Slater, who has the Created for TV credit. And then Alex Meenhan is the executive story editor, with Danielle Imam as the story editor. And, John, do you want to give us the IMDb summary?
0: Socially awkward, amiable, gift shoppist, Stephen Grant <laughs> learns he may share a body with a ruthless mercenary.
1: Short, sweet, to the point question mark? Sure. <laughs> I mean, I I will say that gift shopist is perhaps my favorite profession I've ever learned about and I learned about it from this show. Yeah, absolutely. Oh my God. Okay. So the way we want to get into this is to think about the story and storytellers and who is telling what story, who is able to tell what story, and how the show sort of offers that to us.
0: Yeah, I think you're right, Danielle. And I mean, there's even a question in the fundamental device of Oscar Isaac's characters that I would suggest is ultimately a device that's about storytelling as much as it is, is about whatever psychological or psychiatric Mm concern I take it will become more prominent in future episodes is. So my way of understanding is that Oscar Isaac's character, Stephen Grant slash Mark slash some, Colonialist nonsense is uh, (laughs) a negative identity disorder. Right. And so thus there's these times at which he is, you know, transported to another time and place for some period of time um, in another character, except sometimes he's conscious of it. Sometimes he's not conscious of it. But all this is to say is that, uh, it's interesting from a kind of meta perspective of the storytellers themselves. It's like the position in the creation of fiction or something like that. Yeah, You have a character that is not only kind of uh, traversing these different times and places, but doing so through a psychological mechanism that questions what is reality, questions
1: yeah.
0: what is human memory and consciousness and these sorts of things. So kind of from that perspective of the storyteller, what do you think that device that is given to Oscar Isaac's characters enables the storytellers in this series to do?
1: Yeah. I like that question a lot because I think like there's a meta version of that question, right? Yes. That like thinking about the, the series as a story, but I think in terms of the like, the device given to Oscar Isaac's characters to, at least in, in this episode, we meet uh, Stephen Grant and we spend most of the episode with him. We sort of, like, get the... I feel like this isn't a, a huge spoiler. <laughs> I think it's on the IMDb page that this is also a character that Oscar Isaac plays. But we, we get sort of the sense that there is another personality, right? Like there's another person there. Oscar Isaac plays the other personality. I think it allows us to be exposed to the ways in which different people might experience the same, like, reality differently, right? So, like, it, it questions any sort of objectivity that a reality could have. And we only get snippets of this in this episode where, like, The where Stephen's character blacks out and then, like, wakes up and, like, there are dead bodies around him or wakes up and is driving a car, which seems quite dangerous.
0: Or, (laughs) I mean, or back in his Stephen persona in London, wakes up and it's several days later than he actually thinks it is.
1: Right. Or, like, part, you know... In the beginning of the episode, we sort of see him wake up and he's tied himself to the bed. And as the episode goes on, the multiple personalities that we are exposed to allows us to see why he might need to tie himself to the bed. Right. Like, and he is sort of diagnosing himself as, as having a kind of sleep disorder. Yeah. And so like, there's a version of the it's sleepwalking, I think, right? He
0: says that yeah. at one point in the episode.
1: Yeah, I have a sleepwalking story later, <laughs> um, after we get through this very serious discussion. For
0: for patron exclusive.
1: Yeah, Patreon exclusive, sleepwalking story.
0: The structure of the episode itself, I think, accesses some of these questions as well, even yeah. kind of before we know more about the character of Stephen Grant. Because yeah. as a first-time viewer through this, the cold open we do not see the face of the character, right? We see nothing more than like the back or the outline as they like take a shot, crush the glass, put the glass in their like sandals and get up and start walking. And I assumed that that was an Oscar Isaac character from the very little that I knew going in. So we're kind of wrong footed as an audience member from the beginning, which kind of maybe sets us up or primes us to engage in some of the questioning that you're suggesting.
1: No, I think that that's absolutely right. And this is only my second time viewing this, and I'm not, like, particularly familiar with these characters or, like, or the comics. And so I think that observation that we're wrong-footed from the jump and that we're asked to think about, like, what's real, what's fake. And I think the first time I watched this, I, I thought that the, like, I'm calling it the Switzerland stuff, though that's not exactly where they are. Austria um, is what... Yeah. And that tells me. Yeah. I thought that the Austria stuff was a dream, right? So I like, that was, it was hard for me to access that this was, all of this was happening in real time, which I think just speaks to the point of like the question of reality of, of the viewpoint, how the episode is structured to sort of like maybe confuse us from the beginning as to what is real.
0: And it confuses us at the same time that, the device itself makes less opaque the, and apparently I'm going to go like full auteur here, even for a Marvel show. Like it makes less. No, I don't. It makes less (laughs) opaque. I love it. (laughs) The role of the author in structuring this universe, right? Because, instead of the story progressing linearly with a character who is transparent to themselves, right. The fact that it is, you know, fast forwarding through 45 seconds of like violence in this chase mm-hmm. scene or jumping ahead or forward two days. So it's all roughly part of the same universes, same world, same time, same places, same spaces, but we get to see more openly the Thumb on the scales, if you will, of the nice. storyteller or the creators of a show um, themselves. So really uh, what I've determined is that this is a show that's entirely about Kevin Feige.
1: I mean, I feel like all of the MCU is always already that. <laughs> <so>.
0: <laughs> and Daniel wonders why I have an aversion.
1: <laughs> <laughs> to like double down on the MCU of it all point is that the making less opaque the the thumb of the OTOR, right? Or like the presence of the OTOR does also seem to be the MCU, like at least the phase four version of the MCU's relationship with an OTOR, right? Like
0: Yeah, and we even talked about this a little bit at the last Loki episode of mm-hmm. the season and thinking about kind of Kang and authorship and yeah. like the creation of the world vis-a-vis free will and determinism and all those sorts of things. So, you know, like as much as I may have my aversions, so there's still these kinds of questions that are there to, to ponder.
1: Yeah. And I think that question of like, what is reality? Whose story is being told? Who is telling the story yeah. within the universe of the show? Like that is going to be something recurring. So I think that it's worth us flagging it, it here in the first episode so that we can come back to thinking about like authorship within the universe. And maybe at the end of the, of the six episode arc, we can think about authorship, like in terms of the show itself too. Perfect. Perfect. Should we talk a little bit about some of the stuff you enjoyed less than? Uh, than uh,
0: yes, well, one of them is like a, a footnote to the storyteller, like okay. the structure. Is that you know, it's going to surprise none of our couple of listeners that <laughs> I complained in Loki about there's like no consequences to any violence. Yeah. And now here there is only consequences, but no violence itself, right? So, like, the guy is left bloodied in the truck in, uh, like, fast forward of Oscar Isaac's characters, right, who just takes care of them and commits some act of violence. We don't actually see it. So, mm-hmm. the, you know, it's like the flip side reverse of the Loki problem.
1: I'm just gonna no comment on that, okay. and
0: that's an auspicious uh, no comment.
1: Yeah, well, well, like the like stories. I want to flag violence, and I want to come back to it in a couple of episodes.
0: Perfect. Um, so then there's like all the Egyptology, cosmology aspects of it, mm-hmm. and there's I mean a number of things we could talk about here and I know we're going to have a probably sustained discussion about this as we explore the kind of the broader ramifications and political ramifications of it, but just kind of on a basic level as somebody who knows about the MCU, but I think was not particularly familiar with the Moon Knight comics before this show, what was the import of turning to Egyptian cosmology as the kind of framing structure of an mcu show for you
1: i feel like that's such a fraught question because well do we want to do
0: the fraught stuff first and then we can be like and then just on a pure story as quote-unquote pure storytelling level explore it
1: maybe let me give you like my relationship with egyptology and then we can sort of like get darker and more frustrated after this after this happy note (laughs) i've and i said this to john uh when we were prepping but like you know i'm like a child of the 80s egyptology was like all the rage i feel like i read so many fiction books that were like based on egyptology so there is a part of me that in this show like just gets so excited about the egyptology of it all and like the fact that they're talking about the aeneid and like the fact that like that stephen grant like knows about these things and is excited about them and even in the fish tank like there's a little there's a little pyramid right like but this stuff is is present for him there's something incredibly nostalgic about that for me however like there's also the like oh all of this my enjoyment of this is at once like a, a performance of neoliberal subjecthood, neoliberal capitalist, etc., like, colonialist subjecthood that is, like, just derives pleasure from this and does not recognize the, the violence of it. And also is, like, the political theorist in me is, like, well, all of this is is always violence, So so, like, try to be attentive to that, too. I I guess, like, I have a complicated relationship to this stuff.
0: (laughs) Yeah. So I'm sure we'll have a broader point about the colonial aspects here in a minute. But before we do, the scarab that Oscar Isaac's character has in the Alps, the tattoo on Arthur Harrow's arms that's used to judge people,
1: Mm -hmm. their
0: goodness and badness and the past, present, future, right? All of that kind of cosmological part would if it weren't colonialist garbage, be really fascinating, but it is colonialist garbage. And so I find it like not particularly engaging as a viewer.
1: Yeah. And I think like, this is like, this is you and I in our, in some of our most opposite, which is I always want to overlook the, like the violent histories part to enjoy and like i don't i'm not proud of that
0: well i mean i don't want to like claim innocence here you know i'm thinking on a something that has zero comparison to the mcu but i will make this point because i think there's a like structural analogy here like a movie like spring breakers by harmony corinne which is a movie that would like to say that it is satirizing the male gaze, except mm-hmm. that it's partaking in an extremely deep and often uncomfortable level in that male gaze. Yeah. Much like, because I think that's an aesthetically fascinating piece of art. I'm yeah. willing to grant them that we're satirizing this male gaze that we're reenacting. Yeah. In a bunch of ways all throughout the two hours of the film. So I don't want to say that I am a like absolute pure viewer or anything no. like that. But what is one willing to overlook for the sake of an MCU show? We are going to have different answers on that.
1: Yeah. And I would also say that for me, it's not just an MCU sh- Like, it's not overlooking just for an MCU show. Like, I saw the Tom Cruise movie, The Mummy, in theaters multiple times. Not because it was a good movie, but because I'm like, ooh, Egypt stuff. You know? And so I think, like, that's the, there like... There is a certain level of consumerism that I like am willingly engaging in and cognizantly engaging in that like, like does not square with some of my other like mm. general political commitments. This show throws that throws that relationship into relief for me uh, a little bit.
0: Or it rather, does.
1: talking about it with you. <laughs>
0: So let's uh, maybe kind of explore some of this. So yeah. I think there are at least two major levels to why this is colonialist nonsense. Okay. So one level is the kind of general framing structure of this show, which is let us have uh, two main actors, Oscar Isaac, Guatemalan and Cuban, and Ethan Hawks, who is a white American man. Right? Um, I do not believe that Jeremy Slater, who is the creator and showrunner of the show, is Egyptian, um, to my knowledge. This is a kind of simplistic point, but I'm f- actually fine with the simplistic version of the cultural appropriation version of this, which is just that like you're set up to fail and set up to reproduce various colonial structures when on the simplest level we have this show that is fundamentally rooted in Egyptian cosmology, right? Um, with some of probably not all, right? I mean, you know, there are probably sure other folks involved in who will come in later episodes. And I know that like we're going to Cairo in later episodes as well. Mm-hmm. But just on like the fundamental baseline level of the show, the framework is colonialist, I like at its root, I would say.
1: One, I agree with that. Two, Oscar Isaac made a really great joke, which is the reason I know he's Guatemalan and Cuban. In his SNL monologue a couple of months ago, he was like, I'm Guatemalan and Cuban. And like the audience cheers. And he goes, as casting directors like to say, ethnically ambiguous. Which like, they're trading
0: on in this show.
1: So I, I, this is I'm going to say a couple of things that are not meant to undercut or delegitimize the points that you made, but simply complicate them. One, Stephen Grant, Mark Spector in the comics are not supposed to be Egyptian. They're Jewish and from Chicago, which is like, we will, we'll find this out later. But like, that is the version of him. So Oscar Isaac is not supposed to be Egyptian. Mm -hmm. That doesn't, again, it doesn't undercut the point you're making. However, like the character is not supposed to be Egyptian. One. And Mohammed Diab, who is, you know, he is like, the director of this Mm -hmm. is an Egyptian like screenwriter and director. So like, which I think raises some of the same questions that we talked about a little bit in Loki, which especially around the, the question of sexuality in Loki, which is like, okay. So we like the representation on screen is actually like, doing something, by many analyses, problematic. However, like, in the director's chair or in the writer's chair, we, we get some of, like, some of the representation that perhaps we are, we are like, wanting to mirror on screen. I don't think that, that it's solved. I think the problems you lay out are, like, very real and are not solved by, like, having one person or two people who, like, you know, who ethnically match up with, like, what we wish we were seeing on screen like that doesn't take away from the fact that like the problem here is a problem of like colonialism and the way in which it's baked into the structure of the show. And I think we could even argue that like having an Egyptian director while still sort of falling victim to so many of these, of these power dynamics, in fact enhances the expression of that very problem. Right. Mm-hmm. But I raise these points just to, to complicate. It, it's not as simple as like, these are not egyptian actors and it, and the show is trading in egyptology but but that the the legacies of of like colonialism and imperialism that the show is raising and at least at this point not questioning that goes like quite deep in terms of the production i think we're in agreement on this that the solution is not to simply have actors who ethnically match the kinds of identities that like maybe would make more sense but it is like what would what would a show look like that actually takes seriously the the problems and and questions and the violence of colonialism right that's, like
0: that's a much smarter version of that, of my point. So I appreciate like the, your reformulation of that. Cause I think that's a more meaningful way to think about it. And that I think speaks to the other, like more specific colonialist problem yeah. I had with this episode, which is like, they take this framework that I would argue is fundamentally colonial. Mm-hmm. And they then tell the story from within that framework through a ethnically ambiguous, to use Oscar Isaac's joke of himself um, from, SML, from SNL character to work in the equivalent in the show of like the British Museum or whatever. Yeah. So you're literally setting the show, one of its main settings is one of the most vibrant expressions of colonialist epistemology and colonialist uh, ways of engaging with the places that are colonized is let us steal all of these cultural artifacts and then bring them to the home quote unquote country for the display of how great we are and how knowledgeable we are and how capacious and worldly and global we are. And so, like, obviously, we, you know, I don't need to rehearse a full like critique of, you know, Europeans and Americans like stealing shit from all around the world yeah. and then displaying in museums. But that's that's like a fundamental aspect of this yeah. show, and it's to your point, to your smarter point than I've made about. The show then could engage with this at all. Yeah. Is that not only are like they not engaging with it, they're not engaging with it when the MCU has at times been willing to engage with this at least once in the past I and mean, granted, I don't know a lot of MCU but like Killmonger's character in Black Panther goes to the museum and takes back what yeah. is rightfully like Wakanda's, right? These artifacts. And yeah. And that's before the show narratively turns against Killmonger in a kind of fucked up way. They are, that was there in the past. Yeah. Like that's available, that modifier is available to them. And instead of doing that, it's like, let's make some jokes around the British Museum and Oscar Isaac can, like, ed- educate this child about the Egyptian gods and, like, isn't it cool that there's this wonderful exhibit of all this Egypt stuff that uh, British colonialists, colonialists stole a long time ago.
1: So, again, like, I, I, I agree with all that. I want to complicate the point, though. Is it possible that, like, and Sort of granted, we need a, a capacious, generous view of the show that maybe we're not always interested in offering um, or interested in viewing the show through. Is it possible that there is a little bit of it's It doesn't go as far as the Killmonger point, which is a really good point. But Oscar, but Oscar Isaac's as Stephen Grant, being like, "Uh, the poster's wrong. Like, we got this wrong. All the marketing materials are wrong. Like, I think it's possible to read that as a little bit of like, see how fucked. Like, th- there's something fucked up about this too. It's again, it doesn't go as far, but I do think like, I mean, it's that's possible- played
0: for laughs more than it's played to make a point, which is not to which is not exclusive of the read you're giving it, but like. I heard that line and like that's me meant as a moment of humor in this mostly darker show rather than to demonstrate something interesting about colonialism.
1: I think it's possible to read it as a both end I, again, sure, like sure, we sure, have sure. to be generous about it and we're not always wanting to be generous, <laughs> but one of the, well, one of the, we or ones.
0: you like, if you, if you can just say you, you in that sentence.
1: No, but I, I suspect that we have listeners listener who like agrees with you and like who is probably i'm sure that there are plenty of people who are frustrated by not only the blatant display of colonialism but something that you had said earlier the like doubling down of it in in like setting this in a museum and in seemingly being unaware of flag-waving structure of of colonialism and the way in which museums fit into that, right? Like, the the unawareness or the, like, mm, intentional, like, unawareness, whatever it is. Like, I'm sure that there are people who are equally as frustrated. Mo- I, I suspect most people who are engaging the show otherwise are frustrated. There are plenty of people that are frustrated by the show. I don't think that, that m- many of them... Are are thinking about it through the lens of colonialism, which is what we bring to the what we bring to the discourse. Absolutely. H- however, I wanna. There will be times where I'm going to offer some, some like defenses of the show. I did it for Loki. I'm sure I'll do it for for this. Here, I just want to offer that like perhaps there like there is an opening to something more complicated i think like there can be that opening and we can still be frustrated that it didn't go this the same distance as the scene from black panther with killmonger and but like that it was there and that something was there and like it might have been played for laughs but also like it also might have been a li- it might have been coming from the writer's room where people were like it is ridiculous the like amount of traction that the british empire gets off of egypt and they're always consistently like putting up posters with the wrong information on it like they you know they stole all our shit and they can't even get it right right like that's also there Mm -hmm. that's
0: there i'd be more willing to take that more to heart if it didn't exist alone in the same episode when Ethan Hawke's character Harrow is like, well, if Ahmed hadn't been like, you know, uh, hidden by the other gods or whatever, she would have stopped Hitler, Pol Pot, the Armenian genocide and Nero. Like, get the fuck out of here. Like, come
1: on. So your favorite line of the episode is what you're telling me. Yeah, my favorite
0: line. (laughs) That that and let's for no fucking reason have Maya Angelou and Nelson Mandela and Malala (laughs) Youssef. Like, not even full sentence sound clips are on the exact same level to me.
1: I mean, my read of that line from Harrow is like, is for us to recognize like how ridiculous this character is. And like, just like how out there his beliefs are. Um, which I think at least serves more of a purpose than the Maya Angelou, like Nelson Mandela soundbite nonsense. But like, I, you know, I, I see, I see where you're coming from. I see the frustration.
0: Yeah. So there's a lot. Any,
1: of anything else, any other colonialist nonsense you want to put on the table? I'm, sh- I'm
0: sure we have. We've got plenty of time over the next five weeks. I think Oh my I'm god.
1: Good. Honestly, the Egyptology stuff has not even started, (laughs) like like strap in my friend. But like, hey, but
0: here's the thing, like the representations of the gods that are the Egyptian gods that are goddesses and deities that are present in the show are really cool looking. And like, fine. Yeah. Like, I'm willing to partake in that colonialist desire to see that, which is exotic represented, yeah. quite literally represented to me in this way. So I don't want to claim that like, I have any moral purity here either.
1: Yeah, and I think, like, it will be interesting for us to return to the question of, like, Egyptology vis-a-vis colonialism, like, as the show goes on. Because, like, believe me, it does not get... There's not less of it. There's not less Egypt of it all. And there's not less, like, Egyptology artifacts, like, figures uh, and representations of gods and goddesses and mythology. Like, there's not less of that. But... Like, I think we'll be able to come back to, to thinking about like, you know, its relationship to colonialism, its relationship to the plot of the, and the arc of the story and like where those things intersect. Fair enough. But I'm, you know, I'm just ready for you to be mad about it all season.
0: (laughs) I'm sure that's, that's why we have the huge audience numbers that we do is that I just complain
1: about all these shows. Listen. Somebody needs to complain about them. Most people are out. Most people are out here on Front Street like me. Like we love this. We love. Give us more of it. You're like everybody. Let's relax with the. Yeah, movie.
0: I'm like don't Loki should have just ended the MCU like you know and <laughs> it's over. Like, or I'm like Danielle informed me you know that. As colonialist as this show is, it is less colonialist than the comics on which it is drawing from.
1: And and like,
0: to me, the answer to that is just don't do the show. But whichever Bob running Disney plus Kevin Feige uh, apparently needed this show to exist so they could build another house.
1: Shout out to our boys on the watch and the Iger counter. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Okay. I have a question for you, like as we're sort of wrapping up our thinking about stories and also thinking about like big picture what's frustrating so far. How does this episode work for you as a first episode of a, of a series that you know nothing about?
0: it mostly works. Like I enjoyed watching this more than, and, and this is really with all I just said over the yeah. last 30 plus minutes. Like I mostly enjoyed watching this. Like I rolled my eyes a lot and cringed a lot at a lot of things. Cause there's a lot that's cringeworthy in this show. And also like, there's cool things to look at. I'm extremely skeptical that they can do anything, you know, radical with the dissociative identity disorder stuff, but like it on a pure creating a work of fiction level that's potentially interesting. So, you know, it I think explains enough without explaining too much yeah. in terms of like all the different dynamics of the show. And like, let's be honest, as we think about which of Danielle's theories from Loki apply uh, and continue into midnight, <laughs> your theory that I would enjoy a show that is less contingent on the rest of the MCU more than a show that is semi or mostly contingent on the rest of the MCU, is correct.
1: I, you know, I do like being right. The fact that you're less frustrated, that there are plenty of things that are frustrating and cringeworthy about this show, but that you are ultimately less frustrated by this show than you were by Loki, I think says something about the show, says something... At least about the like the structure of storytelling, that there's at least something pulling you in because I feel like even after the first episode of Loki, you were like, okay, I'm wa- we're watching this together for this podcast, and like that's that. But I'm I'm not like there aren't pieces of this that are particularly interesting to me.
0: Yeah, and it, it also shows that I'm willing to like take my cloning list critique only so far when it uh, butts up against personal pleasure or enjoyment or whatever.
1: And listen, like we get to watch Oscar Isaac play multiple characters and talk to himself, yeah. which is
0: well. I'm, I'm sure we'll get to the accent part. Uh, oh, and, don't we'll, worry, and more there's, Oscar there's Isaac later on.
1: Accent corner. Do not. Nobody. Nobody worry. Um, I think that that wraps up our our main discussion.
0: It sure does.
1: All right. Let's move into segments. Let's let's get started here with Marvel splaining. All right. What are Danielle. some questions you have?
0: I have no fucking idea who or what <laughs> this voice that is speaking to Oscar Isaac is throughout the episode. Only that I believe in the end credits say, it says that F. Murray Abraham is voicing. Yes. This disembodied voice. Um, I'm going to assume as part of some Egyptian cosmology appropriation bullshit, but can you give me any more info?
1: Yeah. And this isn't like too bad of a spoiler. Cause I believe we find this out like, pretty early on next week. Um, so the disembodied voice is Khonshu, who is the god, the Egyptian god, that Mark Spector is the Avatar for. We hear uh, Khonshu, F. Murray Abraham, of world fame, you know. Uh, we hear Khonshu call Stephen the worm, and, like, he's very frustrated when Stephen takes over the body. So, Conchu has a relationship with Mark, but not a relationship with Steven. Okay. That's, like, what we're, I think, meant to learn through this episode. All and right. we'll get more of it as the show goes on.
0: From one disembodied voice to the other. Who is yeah. Layla? Like, Layla is somebody who presumably knows Mark, but doesn't know Steven. And am I supposed to understand anything more than that at this point in
1: at this point, you're not supposed to understand much more than that. I think it's clear from, like, that long list of calls that Layla is important to mm-hmm. Mark. Um, but it's not supposed to be clear right now, like, who Layla is. Um, and the other thing we learn is that St- she doesn't know, like, she doesn't know Steven, Steven doesn't know her, right? So if these two inhabit the same body... She only has a relationship with one of them. Steven is discovering that Layla is a person when he sees her calls. Layla is based on a different character from the comics, but Layla is the version of Layla that we'll get is like a show creation. Okay. It's an MCU creation. Fair enough. Other, any other, other questions? No,
0: I'm, I'm there. I'm sure a number of things I'm just expecting or have been informed by my illustrious co-hosts that I will learn soon enough about the show. But <laughs> yeah. those were two that I was wondering if there were broader MCU connections to be made.
1: Two things. One is there are not a lot of MCU connections. In fact, there are basically none. This show is like made to be standalone. It's not clear if there's going to be a second season. Oscar Isaac only signed up for like a one-shot deal. He didn't want to be locked in. Good. Good. <laughs> I'm like fucking lock this way. man down. Finally. <laughs> um so one spent and spend enough was, time
0: in Star Wars.
1: <laughs> well, I actually that's like that's basically exactly what it is. He doesn't want to be locked into another franchise um in the same way that he was locked into Star Wars. Which which I think makes sense. The MCU also like Marvel is, has also been restructuring their contracts. So they're no longer locking people in for like 10 films the way it, it worked with like Robert Downey Jr. Or Chris Evans. And it seems like they are doing a little bit more piecemeal. So, but Oscar Isaac, like he was not interested in a, in a longer term thing. Okay. The other thing is that like, I don't have a ton of background knowledge on Moon Knight. So like I have a little bit more than you cause I've watched the show once over already, but like I was learning all this as I watched the show and listened to our buds over on the Ringer verse, um, mostly Joe and Mal, but also the middle. Our, our
0: aspirational buds for the. Record.
1: Our aspirational buds, yeah. But you know, listen—if they ever need someone to come on and talk about political, political theory, theory, I mean,
0: they clearly were. The we first are theory.
1: like. Give us that Spotify cash. Talk about colonialism. (laughs) Yeah,
0: here, can I have some Danielak money?
1: (laughs) (laughs) So I was thinking that for this round of our MCU deep dive, we could do something a little different in the Easter egg hunt. Perfect. So instead of me telling you, giving you a choice of a bunch of things, and you guessing which is the Easter egg, I thought, something fun that we could do is you could just guess things that you either think are Easter eggs or want to be Easter eggs. um, And I'll tell you if you're right.
0: That's a great idea for a segment in general. I don't want anything to be an Easter egg. So that's a like (laughs) null part of the game. No
1: aspirational Easter eggs for you. No
0: aspirational Easter eggs.
1: Okay. Fair. What things do you think, could
0: be easter eggs okay i'm gonna there's a bit that i could do in literally every episode but that would get very tired very quickly so let me just get it out of the way first and then actually play the game that we're trying to play all right so the, the bit the bit is something like oh is the austrian town where i don't know thor and tony stark had bad banter and then killed a bunch of people or Did the fish have a party with the Ant-Man or did Groot and the fucking raccoon creature like blast Bob Dylan from their stereo in their spaceship? I think they have a spaceship, right? So like the bit is along those lines. Um,
1: Honestly, I'm impressed that you knew that Groot and Rocket had a spaceship. I like feel like that is beyond what I thought you knew. I was
0: going to call it Rocky Raccoon, but I think that's a different... uh, (laughs) That's a different thing, (laughs) but I wasn't that far off. Apparently, no. Okay, so then let me uh, actually engage the uh, engage the Easter egg hunt. Number one, the statue that Oscar Isaac's character talks to is that an Easter egg?
1: Sort of. Um. (laughs) Yeah, almost. It. I mean, I think like let's use a longer definition of of easter egg and so i'm gonna say yes you got that one so you're winning that easter egg hunt um oh i didn't realize this.
0: i don't think this is a score keeping.
1: oh easter i egg. know but i but i feel excited when you like gain knowledge about the mc i know <laughs> you don't feel excited about it but i feel oh, excited about don't worry
0: it. you're gonna i'm gonna be so mad at myself in about 45 seconds and you're gonna be so thrilled <laughs> that this popped into my head so brace yourself
1: so the statue, the, the guy who's the human statue, um, it himself is not an Easter egg, but I think he resembles a character from the comics who is, like, a homeless man who, like, h- lives on the streets of, of New York and, like, helps Mark Spector a lot. Yeah, mostly an Easter egg.
0: I'll take it. I'm going to count that one
1: as, as a win. Okay, what's your next?
0: Is there like a Marvel uh, property, quote unquote, where there like actually is a vegan or vegetarian who gets taken to a carniv- carnivorous restaurant like Oscar Isaac unknowingly makes a date with Dylan is the character I learned from IMDb um, played by Saffron Hawking and then no-shows it for two days later.
1: No, but I feel like we're we're moving in that direction. <laughs> okay,
0: I'm I'm assuming that like that's a, that was a bad joke referencing some other MCU thing. Um, and then here's the one that I hate myself for thinking. Um, okay, and I also hate the show for making me think. <laughs> Is the Enied? Am I pronouncing that Enied? Yeah. Are we supposed to like make the leap from like the gods of Egypt are assembling like the Avengers assemble and like this? the super group of the Aeneid is like the super group of the Avengers. Cause if so, I might have to never watch an episode of this ever again.
1: Mm, no, I don't, and I, I-, I hate
0: myself for being so Marvel pilled and I'm going to actually blame you for this, that I had, <laughs> that I had that thought cross my brain. Um, <laughs> so there we are.
1: No, I feel like if anything, the Avengers as an assemblage is like, drawing from various mythologies in which like teams of gods or gods and demigods, et cetera, et cetera, like are dealing with things. So it like, no, I don't think we're supposed to make that jump. I think like if the, a jump like that is in there anywhere, it it's supposed it like implicitly goes the other way. Okay.
0: How do you feel about me having that thought enter my brain in?
1: I feel like I've done some 20, good work here. Right.
0: <laughs> All right. I have I have no more guesses for the Easter egg hunt.
1: I think that you've done a very nice job. That's I feel right. like this is a good version of the Easter egg hunt for a show where we both know very little about Fair the, <laughs> the universe of it. Yeah. All right. Shh. Let's get into Glass.
0: All right. So you a little bit referenced this above, Danielle, but... How do you see, so we have two kind of, like, famous, well-established, like, mm-hmm. highly, like, high-reputation actors in Oscar yeah. Isaac and Ethan Hawke in this show. Do you think, and you mentioned a little bit with the kind of Oscar Isaac say, I'm only doing this for one season. But do you think there's anything notable about, like, these prestige actors in this particular MCU show that's worth commenting about?
1: Well, I I... I have been thinking about this because I was listening to an episode of the big picture recently where they were talking about Ethan Hawke's like full catalog. And I feel like Ethan Hawke is just a character is just a person who makes like a lot of interesting choices. And there's a lot of like one for them, one for me. Like I'm going to do the franchise stuff so that I can also do the like weird stuff. But I'm, but I also like, believe in the franchise stuff in Ethan Hawke's Ove, And so I think he's phenomenal as this character. I think he, Harrow is like not a huge, he's present in the comics, but like not, it's not the same role. Um,
0: we we needed a token white guy for audience identification we purposes. A,
1: well, we needed a token white guy to like lead the Egyptian cult. Right. Like I think it's like, it's, it's the, the sinisterness of that, that we needed. We needed a token white guy with like stringy hair walking on glass. like. Yeah. And Ethan Hawke like plays a weird cult leader, like the best of them. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I think like something, something to me that's notable is that actually Oscar Isaac convinced Ethan Hawk to do it. Like, Saw him in the coffee shop and was like, let's, let's, you should do this. And then they like got drunk a couple of days later and he was like, okay, cool. So like, they just like, he decided to do it for Oscar Isaacs. And I like, there's something interesting about their dynamic that I'm, I'm interested for me that I'm interested to see like how, even if we could peel away the like, okay, this is the token white guy. Okay. Like this, this Oscar Isaac, like, isn't doing the representation that I want it to do. Like if we can peel away that a little bit, I'm interested in how you receive their dynamic.
0: They're good at what they do. Like they're very good actors. And that's why I wish they had better material. Like, (laughs) sorry, not sorry. (laughs) Not,
1: you're never sorry. <laughs>
0: um, that's true. Um, All right. No, I'm willing to apologize for most things, but only if I'm no, genuinely, no. genuinely feeling remorse, and I feel no remorse about.
1: No, uh, I, about I don't this. expect you to feel any. Remorse I mean, like about if it. if
0: this isn't an, is an inevitability that one has to accept, then I would want them to be like, "Cool, six episodes, a couple months, then I'm fucking done." <laughs> so, Vysaskar yeah. Isaac made that happen, I suppose. <laughs>
1: They're inching closer to the John curve of MCU enjoyment.
0: No, no, they're, they're not because the curve is like we dissolve into a black hole and it all goes away forever. So thanks oh to, God. thanks to Loki. Thanks to Sylvie. Sylvie plunged us into the MCU <laughs> in its entirety into the black hole of nothingness oh and God. saved the world that way.
1: Here's the thing. I am not interested in horror movies. So there's like a ton of Ethan Hawke stuff that I haven't seen because he's like been in all these horror movies in the last, like he was in the purge and like he's been recently in the black phone. Like I'm not interested in any of that, but I am very interested in him as an actor. I feel like he's someone who I've been watching, like since I knew what movies were. And so I like an actor I like in an MCU property makes me really excited i know it doesn't make you as excited but this is two actors i really like that i'm like all right like let's just let's do it let's fire this up yeah
0: they're gonna do a great job but i'd rather them do a great job in something aesthetically pure let's just
1: be honest here <laughs> oh my god all right let's let's keep going with it. what else what else we got in glass
0: we've got a lot of mirrors. Um, Lots we've, of mirrors. So we've got some you know pre-cave Freud love, especially Lacan situations happening here. We oh, got faces and masks and like perspectives and tricks of the eye and pers- and angles and all of these sorts of things in the mirrors. And like it's not subtle, but I that's, I don't say that as a critique of this. Surprisingly, yeah, yeah. Um, huh. Like I thought that it mostly was a. They did a pretty good job using it both as an expository device like in the Mm -hmm. end when it's Mark who's like in the mirror talking to Steven. But then at other times it literally is kind of just uh, like slight flourish. And so I thought that mostly worked.
1: Yeah. Look at me. I'm
0: so generous, Danielle. I keep telling you this and you're used to believe me.
1: Please stop saying that (laughs) it's offensive to my people (laughs) (laughs) the people who like the mcu the use of mirrors it's is not subtle but like i don't think anything in the mcu is like particularly subtle sometimes easter eggs are subtle like that's i think the Mm, only thing by definition
0: they can't be subtle sorry
1: no, but, like, sometimes you get, like, a blurry number in the back and that's actually an Easter egg to a comics issue. Yeah, like,
0: that's not subtle. That's okay. something else. <laughs> oh,
1: Jesus, it's like a really rough crowd.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> um, I Yeah, so I don't think that the mirrors are subtle, but I think that they, I agree with you, they're, like, they're well used. I particularly like it when it's, when Mark is getting ready for or rather when Stephen is getting ready for his date. And he's like, you look like, I forget what he says. Something like you look like a wanker yeah. or you look like a knob. That's what mm-hmm. it is. Mm-hmm. My second favorite British, like, <laughs> ism.
0: In the final scene, right, in the bathroom at the museum, they're not the first piece of, like, filmed artwork to have ever done. The let's get into a bathroom with multiple mirrors on both sides. And so we get to see kind of an infinite number of mirrors. But yeah. that's also not a knock. Like, that's a, like, interesting yeah. thing to do in the right circumstance. And it's done at the right moment in this episode as... The Steven character is realizing that there's a hell of a lot more going on than he ever realized. And so representing that in that way, and then right after that, having, and the most close up of the mirror selves be Mark, like mm-hmm. works as a, as a narrative device.
1: Yeah, I mean, let's just stop. I'm going to take that compliment for the show and, like, let's just move on to the next thing. <laughs> I have
0: another compliment for the show. Oh the, costu- God, the costumes in this are pretty good, I think. Like, yes. and certainly the, I guess, Moon Knight costume at the very end of the episode that's revealed is, like, pretty badass um, and pretty punk. And, but. Even the, like, way that they have dressed Oscar Isaac's character throughout. It's not like the clothes are cool, but it's, like, effective costuming for the character that they are creating. Um, Like, I could picture somebody in that role at that museum, like, in that cloneless mechanism dressing that way. So, and, like, generally costuming, pretty good. And I thought, like, the costuming for uh, Arthur Harrow, also pretty cool, so... I'm in on that.
1: I was thinking about the Arthur Harrow costume as well. And like they are, it's it's giving major like cult leader vibes, which I think is like right on the money.
0: Like maybe low key negging Catholicism vibes about like the kind of self-flagellation or self kind of abuse, self bodily abuse to get one's closer to one's deity. Yeah. Yeah. And you suggested that we're to take uh, Harrow less seriously than I think the show has suggested we're taking yeah. Harrow's. Like I misread that. Um, and with your reading of it, like that's even more reason to think about his costuming as cult leader, I believe.
1: Yeah. 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 I'm uh, yeah. I'm into the cult leader vibes of, of Harrow. I would not follow him, but I'm into the vibes.
0: I think both of us could just successfully insulate ourselves from cults. Except that we both ended up in academia. Okay, moving on. <laughs> what's next on gloss? I would um, like I I that was not actually planned. That came to me in the moment. And so.
1: What's next on gloss is Accent Corner. I just wanna like every episode I want us to check in on accents. Okay. I am obsessed with Oscar Isaac doing a British Cockney accent for the sheer ridiculousness of it and like the just, like, how crazy it is. How do you feel about accents in this episode?
0: Like, I thought Oscar Isaac's varying accent was kind of annoying, but, like, ultimately, I don't care. So, like, okay. it was fine. It didn't bother me too much.
1: All right. And Yeah, okay. Well, so there are other words for that. <laughs> you have said that there is, this is a, a challenge you put to yourself every Marvel episode we watch. Correct. The one good joke challenge. So, yes. what's the one good joke in this episode? The
0: one good joke, and I have to give props to my colleague Danielle for reminding me because my I was going to I was kind of like be like, oh Danielle, there's one good joke. I'm not going to tell you what it is though. I want to see you know what you think I'm going to say in the moment. And my my bit was going to be that there were in fact no good jokes, but <laughs> there's one good joke, and that is the security guard towards the end watching the otter videos on the iPad. I as love it. To like doing whatever security guards do.
1: I love it so much. I I love that he's he's like they're so good. They're so I love these otter videos. I have two friends that have otter tattoos and their otters are like on each of on the legs and the the otters are like they're next to each other they're holding hands. Oh my god, that's adorable. We could get owls holding hands.
0: Great. I'm into that. Um I will say <laughs> other than the otter video joke the humor in this is really fucking bad. Um, it's like so schlocky and there's like, it's just not good.
1: But, like, what else do you think is supposed to be funny? That's what I'm wondering. The
0: character of Donna is supposed to be funny. The, like, vague BDSM reference to the, like, ankle restraint is supposed to be funny. Still, you know, the situation where Oscar Isaac is at the restaurant where he shows up two days late for a supposed date is supposed to be funny. There's just, like, a lot of things where, like, there are supposed to be bantery or witty things that are happening, and they're just not
1: okay I right so I think like there's the the pet to store be, the fish
0: the pet store like that's a scene that's supposed to be a humorous scene
1: no I I think the other ones I'm like on board with those are supposed to be like they're like witty enjoyable and like they're not hitting for you and that's fine the fish scene is not supposed to be funny that's the like the fish scene is how he figures out that like something is up there's they're so supposed
0: like, they're supposed to be laugh lines in that scene and in the, in the interaction between him and the worker at the pets at the pet store
1: or fish I think store, we're gonna maybe. have to agree to disagree on that one yeah. but that's okay I'll take the otter joke as the otter video as a as the one good joke and I'll 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 even take that there's only one good joke in this episode great <laughs> Uh, John, who's our minor character of the week?
0: So she got a name drop a couple of minutes ago. It's the character of Donna, who is Oscar Isaac's boss at the museum, played by Lucy Thackeray. And I actually think we're in agreement here that this is, like, not the fault of Lucy Thackeray as an actor, but, like, just the most stereotypical, like, bitchy character. Like, not a word I would want to use, but, like, that is the way she is written and not in like a bosses are terrible and like seize the means of production way, just no. in like a extremely tropey way.
1: Yeah, and also like in an extremely tropey way, and just like mean for the sake of being mean, right? Like that that doesn't really seem to have a purpose right now. She rivals Claudia for me from The Americans. So, in characters I don't like, which is yes. pretty high.
0: Shocking with 120 seconds of screen time. Uh,
1: Claudia needed less perfect. than 120 seconds wow. of screen time to skyrocket to that status for me. So
0: sure you were, you were like Claudia is extremely sus from day <laughs> from one, so. one from
1: moment one from yeah. You
0: only needed like 2.4 seconds to get there. <laughs>
1: yeah. uh, okay. So let's dive into, but we're definitely in agreement about like Donna being terrible We're in agreement about Lucy Thackeray like doing a great job playing the character, but the terribleness of the character doesn't seem to have a purpose. I think that's our minor character of the week. We'll try to be more positive with minor characters going
0: forward. What if you will try to be more positive with minor characters going forward? (laughs)
1: I'm
0: happy happy if we can just neg on the show for five more episodes. Also in mind, the minor character segment. So,
1: Oh my God. I'll, I'll, I'll poke my eyes out. <laughs> I'm, I'm ready to go. Wow,
0: Oedipus references from Danielle. A no plus. surprise
1: here. A plus. <laughs> I I shoehorned in a tragedy reference. Wow. Here we are.
0: Only appropriate then that the next segment is politics in the MCU. Danielle, yes. what do we have in in politics in the MCU this week?
1: So I think in Politics in the MCU this week, we have this idea of, I believe that Conchu says this to Steven. Yes. Um, He commands Steven to surrender the body. And you had some thoughts about what this maybe connects to.
0: Yeah. So I mean, the kind of, I was going to say obvious, but maybe actually that's not true, um, is like the notion of habeas corpus or like show us or produce the body or yeah. have the body or depending on how one wants to translate from the Latin. Um, but that, that is perhaps this like surrender the body is a, perhaps a slight inversion of that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, not that I think this is like on the show's mind necessarily, but the linguistic political structure of it just so reminded me of the idea of habeas corpus that, yeah. that I thought it was worth, worth noting in this segment.
1: Yeah, it's interesting because I think I would have read that line perhaps in the opposite direction, which is like instead of like show us or or produce the body more in the like surrender the body as linking us to control a little Mm -hmm. bit more and rhetoric, right? But I think like they work in tandem, right? Like the yeah,
0: because who has control? And this is, I mean, made explicit in that final scene in the bathroom like who is in control is about what psyche is inhabiting the body and like producing it for the events in the plot or producing it for the audience.
1: Yeah. And it gets us back to the point we started this entire discussion with around storytelling, right? Like who is inhabiting the body? Who's, who is telling the story? Whose reality are we living in? Are we living in the reality of of Stephen, the gift, sh- gift shoppist who just like knows a ton about Egypt for whatever reason. Colonialist um, or, reasons. what
0: colonialist reasons,
1: colonialist reasons. Uh, I was going to say nebulous reasons, but same, same. Um, <laughs> or are, is it, is it the body of, of Mark Spector, the, uh, assassin, more violent, like the one who is in, co- in contact with this Egyptian deity, like, Whose story is it, whose body is it, right? Like that that those all ripple out from give over the body.
0: Yeah. And thus for Danielle and I, like given stuff we've written or our writing, this then takes us to like a very important book, I think, for shaping both of our thinking, and that is the book Habeas Viscus, or like the notion yeah. of show us or produce the flesh by exactly. Alexander Rahelia, which is a book about Sylvia Winter, and yep. um so, one, three, two, which is a book about Sylvia Winter and uh, Hortense Spillers in which he's thinking about racializing assemblages and flesh yep. and how flesh is something that's both captured by racializing assemblages but might also break beyond it and has been, like I said, relevant for, I think, both Danielle and I in different ways.
1: Yeah. And I think, like, in thinking habeas corpus alongside habeas viscus, right, which, like, habeas viscus is thinking alongside habeas corpus um is thinking the question of the body alongside the question of the flesh right and like what are those things in relation to one another what kind of like authority or agency is is imbued within each of those and i think again a generous read like That those open up to different kinds of stories, to different kinds of storytellers, to different uh, kinds of power or like, yeah, different kinds of power imbued with telling ones, telling a story.
0: Perfect. Love it. You you got a lot more out of that. I was just like, hey, I know those words. It was like a pointed like, (laughs) say the line meme. Um, And you actually took it somewhere. So thank you.
1: Uh I don't think that we could have gotten there without you. But, you know, that's uh that's where I'm at. John, take us into the cave.
0: It's a little bit of a surprise that it's taken us this long to make this happen, Honestly, <laughs> um, considering the tattoo on my right arm, but the um uh, <laughs> guest uh in the cave this week is a is a 2 for 1. Well, that's right. It's Gilles Deleuze and Felix Guattari, authors of the Capitalism and Schizophrenia uh, two-part series. So uh, I think here we're thinking more specifically about an early chapter, mm, chapter is the wrong word, an early plateau, excuse me, in A Thousand Plateaus, uh, the second part of Capitalism and Schizophrenia by Deleuze and Guadari. And so instead of trying to explain Deleuze and Guadari, Danielle, I think I'm going to give the like one sentence set up for this chapter and then read a couple passages from the, from the chapter because I'm so generous with this show that I'm willing to like come in early to my office and like leaf through some pages of Deleuze and Guadari just for the sake of Moon Knight.
1: I want to say two things and then I'm going to just like see the floor to you, which is one, it is way better to let Deleuze and Guattari explain themselves than to ever try to explain them fully. Like they do a better job than we could ever do trying to like wrap our arms around what's going on. And two, I believe that you coming into your office early to like read through a thousand plateaus is like the, the gift you gave to yourself for <laughs> making it through this episode. So like, let's not get it twisted. Okay.
0: Fair enough. Uh, potatoes, potatoes. Um, <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> okay.
0: So to, to lose in and the second plateau from a thousand plateaus called 1914, one or several wolves is a, Deconstruction of Freud's famous psychoanalysis of the wolf man, right? The person who has wolf dreams, among many other things. And Freud goes on to diagnose various things about this person. And so in this uh, plateau, Deleuze and Guattari are totally fundamentally challenging the basic notions of unified subjectivity or even unified subjects in a dream that they think Freud is engaging in instead as we will see in these wonderful passages that I'm about to read to lose a lot you want to think about not one wolf in Wolfman's dreams but several wolves so here we are we love. Uh, where I'm on, I'm on page for <laughs> those following along at home. I'm on page 19 of like the classic Please English
1: open your hymnals yeah. to <laughs> um,
0: paragraph five in uh, one or several wolves. In becoming wolf, the important thing is the position of the mass, and above all, the position of the subject itself in relation to the pack or wolf multiplicity. How does the subject join or does not join the pack? How far away it stays? How it does or does not hold to its multiplicity? Jumping ahead. Freud tried to approach crowd phenomenon from the point of view of the unconscious, but he did not see clearly. He did not see that the unconscious itself was fundamentally a crowd. Last but not least, now jumping ahead to page 31, the wolf is the pack. In other words, the multiplicity instantaneously apprehended as such insofar as it approaches or moves away from zero each distance becoming non-decomposable end quote so self-explanatory i think we're done in the cave
1: (laughs) that seems fine i mean i was gonna say like i think i appreciate you bringing um bringing to and watery into the cave one always uh Yet another another thinker that n- is not only in the cave but is also on John's skin.
0: <laughs> That's true. We're, we're I, we've completed the trifecta actually because we've been in the cave with Foucault with Ahmed and now with Dulas and Guadarrés. So we've got them Do you have an all. tattoo? Yeah, the word body on my on my I didn't leg. Know that
1: yeah, yeah. Oh my god, I did not That's, know that. I mean, You're it's right. less
0: direct than the Dulas and the uh, Foucault tattoos, but it's essentially an homage to Sir Ahmed.
1: I love it. I love it. Well, I think this idea of multiplicity is productive for us, right? Because it allows us to, like, sort of build off of something we are intrigued by or we're interested in that this episode raises. Or, like, perhaps one of the things that, like, is intriguing to us about sort of multiple selves inhabiting the body of one person, that that is not necessarily only the mark of you know a disorder or or like some version of of mental illness but instead is like the lived condition of like of all of us yeah that that's part of what i take them to be saying
0: yeah and they're criticizing whether it's freud or whether it's capitalism itself as mm, processes as assemblages that are, as they would say, de excuse me, territorializing, mm-hmm. right? Which is turning that, which is multiple and trying to force it into oneness or unity or totality yeah. or mass or something like that. Um, all throughout capitalism and schizophrenia in both, uh, both the first and second volumes of it. And thus to have a character who is, or to have a show, which is depicting a multiplicitous, Character, yeah. and they're going to engage in a kind of psychological explanation of it that Deleuze and mm-hmm. would, I suspect, partly embrace but mostly reject. Yeah. Is just, I think, a connection that is intriguing to Danielle and I.
1: Yeah, and I also think that there are ultimately things left. This is a little bit of a spoiler, but only slightly like there are ultimately things that are left unexplained by this show that I think fit into some of this analysis by Deleuze and Guadari. So I think that we let them out of the cave because we like them. They can hang with with Sarah up by the lake.
0: (laughs) Oh, see, I thought we were going to force them to stay in the cave and like they that's where they become BWOs.
1: No, this is a, wow. this is that was, a...
0: Danielle, Danielle, Danielle just, like, <laughs> shut down my attempted, like, obscure Deleuze joke, and I'm very... No, attentive. I got it.
1: I got it. But I'm coming back at you with another obscure, obscure Deleuze joke, which is that they have to be bodies, they have to be without bodies, without organs <laughs> outside of the game. Fair enough. Is Are the shadows on the wall in the cave the original BWOs? Absolutely not.
0: <laughs> it was a
1: joke. It was, a joke. It was a joke. Tensions are high. Tensions are high in episode one of Moonlight. So,
0: no, so no, but the, so here's the thing is that <laughs> I was activated because so the reason, one of the reasons I have a Dills in Guadari tattoo on my arm is because yeah. literally like one of the summers of grad school, the thing that I spent the most time on that summer was doing a thousand plateaus reading group with like an interdisciplinary folks at the grad center. So I'm sure we probably talked about whether Plato's fucking shadows in the cave were, uh, you know, were BWOs or not at some point in meeting rooms around the CUNY grad
1: center. (laughs) So what you're saying is it was a triggering (laughs) 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 comment. I get it. I feel, I feel that there's, You know what? This has been an episode of triggering content. Um, But I think we have gotten to the end of the episode. I would say so. Which is quite amazing for us.
0: Yes. Not quite great books. Several wolves.
1: (laughs) Several wolves. Uh, Some of the wolves like this show and some of the wolves do not. (laughs) Uh, Thanks, as always, to producer Amy. Next up in your feed, dropping on Thursday, will be season two, episode seven of The Americans, ARPANET. With a special guest. Oh yeah, with a special guest. A new guest, someone who hasn't
0: hasn't been on uh, the NQGV before.
1: But we are so excited for them to come on. Sure. And then after that, we'll have Moon Knight episode two. We'll drop next Tuesday. Some in the suit. Uh, No special guests for that one, but we'll we'll have some guests in the Moon Knight feed too.
0: Yeah, I think as of literally this morning, we're like, we confirmed that we'll have a guest for probably episode three.
1: Yeah, very exciting. And that's all from us here on Not Quite Great Books,
0: a TV podcast. Thank you for joining us on another episode of Not Quite Great Books, a TV podcast, created by Daniel Hanley and John McMahon, and indirectly, producer Amy. You can find us on Twitter at NotGreatBooksTV. You can email us at NotGreatBooksTV at gmail.com. If you have comments or questions that we might potentially read and respond to on air, subscribe, download, rate, review us, tell your friends to find us at Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Spotify, Amazon Music, and Google Podcasts. We would like to thank Less FM for Electro Trend 60s, which is the music that you heard at the beginning and you are hearing right now. Until next time go play some racquetball.